Good morning. If I don't look like a regular preacher, that's because I'm not. My name's John England, and uh, it's a pleasure to be able to speak to you this morning, share God's Word, and uh, it's a kind of a humbling experience. It's a, a blessing. So anyway, it's a, it's a pleasure to be able to speak to you. Um, I get these opportunities every once in a while, and I appreciate Phil asking me, um, but it, it doesn't matter. I still get nervous. You'd think after you know, do, doing this for a number of years and teaching high school, which is the, the worst audience ever, <laughs> um, that I you know, wouldn't be nervous about this, but I always am, in part because I, you know, it's a serious thing. Phil asked me if I would preach on John chapter 4, the next in this series that he is uh, working through in the book of John. So if you want to take your Bibles, we're going to be in John chapter 4 for uh, the majority of our message this morning. We're going to have other scriptures and things, but we're going to be in John chapter 4. And I will tell you that um, most of the time when I teach and when I'm in church and Sunday school, I use my iPad. I use Bible Gateway. Uh, as a Bible app, you know, when I'm looking at scriptures and teaching, uh, it's very, very helpful. How many of you use that Bible app? Anybody? And uh, it's nice because you can, you, know, you can look at a variety of different translations and versions of the Bible at once, and there's little Bible helps and things like that. But it's a little unwieldy uh, when you're preaching, so I, I'm uh, going to use my Bible, which is a New International Version. And so I don't use the New International very much anymore. I'm like Phil, use the English Standard Version. So I'm going to be reading uh, John chapter 4 out of my Bible, which is New International Version, but then the scriptures that you're going to hear um, are taken from the English Standard Version, just so you, so you know. Um, it was about the, right around 400 B.C. when the Samaritans, which is the region in Bible times, between Judea on the south and Galilee on the north, these Samaritans decided that they needed to have a place to worship. And so they constructed a temple. It wasn't nearly as elaborate, and we don't know a whole lot about that temple that they built, uh, but we do know that it was on Mount Gerizim. And they believed that that was where they should worship God. The Jews, of course, uh, built the temple according to God's direction on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem. And so now that we have, in this intertestamental period, about 400 B.C., we have this conflict between the temple in Jerusalem and this temple in, in Samaria. About three centuries later, roughly, a guy by the name of John Hyrcanus, uh, along with a number of Jewish uh, soldiers, uh, went to Samaria and destroyed that temple because they believed that that was profane and not where God intended the temple to be. And so we have these, this conflict here between the Jews and the Samaritans, which is kind of the backdrop to the story that we're uh, looking at today in John chapter 4. It says in the first verse, the Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. So, 
we, we see this is a kind of a carryover from the previous chapter where there is a kind of a bit of a tension here between the disciples of John and the disciples of Jesus because as time goes by, more and more people are beginning to follow Jesus and the, the, the disciples of John were somewhat jealous of that. And so Jesus, I believe, leaves Judea for a couple of different reasons. One of them I think, is to kind of avoid this, uh, this conflict, maybe to keep it from becoming worse, to cause a division here that might become a problem. But it's also because we see that the Pharisees, now that Jesus is becoming a little bit more popular and more disciples are flocking to him, that they begin to take an interest in him and not for the right reasons. The Pharisees are going to be, of course, the ones who are accusing Jesus And so I believe Jesus in part left Judea because he understood and realized that it was not his time. Jesus is going to use uh, all of this hatred on the part of the Pharisees to accomplish his plan, but it wasn't, he wasn't ready and it wasn't time for this plan. So he decides to leave Judea and to go to Samaria. In verse four, it says, now he had to go through Samaria. Now, most of the Jews at the time would have said, nobody has to go through Samaria. You know, we don't want to go through Samaria. Most of them, most of the Jews, if they traveled to Galilee, would take a detour. They'd go to the east of the Jordan River and work their way up that direction through Decapolis and then come to Galilee. They didn't want to have to go through Samaria. But his verse says that he had to go through Samaria. Now, of course, it's a straighter line. But I think what that's really referring to is Jesus feeling the compulsion to go there because he knew there was ministry to be done. He knew he was going to meet this woman. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour which would have been right around midday, starting to get hot. Uh, Jesus, of course, from his long journey, being very hot and thirsty. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and again, at a different time than most uh, women would have come to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. Now I want you to notice Something interesting here. It says, The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How, come you, how can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. There is a, 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 tr- a more kind of a literal translation of that last phrase there to associate with Samaritans that it actually meant that they would not share any kind of utensils with Samaritans. There's a, there's a kind of a literal meaning to that. And in part, it was because the Jews believed that the Samaritans were unclean. They practiced unclean things, and so as a result, they were, they were considered unclean, and they would not even share a utensil. Now, here Jesus is asking her for a drink, with the implication being, you know, do you have a cup of water? Maybe it was, maybe it was some sort of a cup or a, a ladle or a can of something, Okay. But he is violating all of what the Jews would have believed by asking her for a drink. 
Then Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. That is an amazing statement, I think. Two things about what Jesus says here that I think are extraordinary in the first part of this. If you knew the gift of God. In John chapter 3, verse 16, you learned this last Sunday. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. If you knew the gift of God. And what is the gift of God? Eternal life. Now, we oftentimes think in terms of eternal life as, you know, life everlasting. It's what we're going to experience after death. God promises to resurrect us. We get to live forever with Him. It says, if you knew the gift of God, this eternal life. And then it says, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, if she knew who Jesus really was. Two things here. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The gift is eternal life. But we need to understand really what that is. In John chapter 17, verses 1 through 3, notice what it says. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. And this is eternal life. Now, one way to think about that is, you know, life everlasting. You know, that we are going to be together forever with, with God in heaven. But notice what it says. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's what eternal life is. It doesn't start sometime down the road after we have died and uh, Uh, are resurrected when uh, Christ comes back again. Eternal life begins now. Jesus is the source of this eternal life, the source of this gift. In John chapter 5, verse 24, notice what it says. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. It's not something in the future. It's It's now. That verb is in present tense. He has eternal life. In John chapter 6, verse 27, it says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Eternal life is something that can be nourished, that can be fed. And we need to partake of that particular food that Christ is going to give to us. In John chapter 6, Verses 40 and 47, it says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. It's a result of faith. That we receive eternal life as a result of our believing. In John chapter 6, verse 68 and 69, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Eternal life is made available through the Word of Jesus. And in 1 John 5, 11, 
It says, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. The eternal life that we have is in Christ, in His Son. Now, if this woman had really known the true nature of what God is offering here, what Christ is offering, and realized that Jesus was both the source of that gift and the essence of that gift, then boy, you think she would have asked for it? You think she would have uh, begged of Jesus for this living water? Well, this is in, in essence the nature of grace. Christ is offering this to her free of charge. And through this grace, grace that we've been talking about through the book of John, this woman is offered and receives three things that we're going to talk about today. Three things that she receives. The first one, of course, is living water. Let's continue on down here. In verse 11 it says, Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. It's interesting that we see a contrast here in the, in the passage between the words well and the word spring. <clears throat> the word well, which could also be translated as cistern, just basically a repository for, for water, is different than a spring. Water that you know, is produced by guys digging in the ground, digging a big hole, and there's water that's there. Okay. A spring, however, is natural, and a spring has fresh, pure, clean, running water. And he uses a contrast here. The water from the well or the water from the spring, the living water that we have. Jesus is really the only one that can give us this water that will quench our thirst, our spiritual thirst, our soul thirst. He's the only one that knows what we really thirst for in our lives. And so he's the one, he's the source, just like the spring, he's the source of this living water. Now, what exactly are we talking about here? This is a, kind of a challenging thing to, uh, to really understand, the partaking and drinking of this living water. There was a, a minister named John Wesley, and he describes an experience that he had that I think in part can help to kind of uh, let us see what this is about. He was talking about receiving the living water, and he was... Um, at a Bible study. And at the Bible study, one of the, uh, the leaders was uh, looking into the book of Romans. And they happened to be reading out of a commentary by Martin Luther. And as he was reading uh, from that commentary, here's what Wesley says happened. He says, as he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. 
I felt I did trust in Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sin, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Now, I'm not saying that you know, the partaking of this living water will necessarily result in some warm, fuzzy feeling. But, more importantly, what Wesley says here, it is an assurance that was given me that he had taken away my sin. That's in part what this living water can do. Another minister by the name of Henry Venn wrote a letter um, talking about the way in which God met him and the way in which God gave him this living water uh, after his wife had passed away. He writes, If I didn't know the Lord to be mine, if I weren't certain that his heart feels even more love for me than I am able to conceive, if this were not obvious to me, not by deduction and argumentation, but by consciousness, by his own light shining in my soul as the sun shines on my bodily eyes, into what deplorable condition I would have been cast. He describes this living water, this thirst being quenched as a sun shining upon his soul. That's what Jesus is talking about here in John chapter 4. He's talking about the gospel going deep into our hearts, into a place where it creates this assurance where we know that God has forgiven us. He's talking about experiencing God, experiencing Christ. He he talks about thirsting and drinking, those experiential things. And it's important for us to remember that all the doctrines that we teach, all the things that we learn about in the Scripture, all the things that we know and all the things that we memorize, are important and significant, but the real reason is that we need to experience those things. It's a a glorious thing to learn the doctrine of forgiveness, but the purpose of that doctrine is for us to feel forgiven and then to respond. It's a glorious thing to learn about the love of God, the doctrine of His love. But the purpose of that doctrine is so that we will feel loved and then respond. The Apostle Paul put it this way, he describes his ministry. Our gospel came to you not only in word, it comes first through the word, and it's important because that's, it's doctrinally sound and biblically based, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Full conviction. Absolute knowledge of the truth of what God has taught us. And that is the gift of God that Jesus is talking about. He's talking about a living reality with Him. Walking every day. Going through every moment of the day with God. Experiencing His guidance. Experiencing His comfort. Experiencing His strength. That's what this living water gives to us. We have joy, even in sorrow. God gives us hope, even in the darkest of times. And He assures us that our sins are forgiven and that we're in a right relationship with Him. 
That's what quenches that deep soul thirst that each one of us has. So what happens when we partake of this living water? Over in Isaiah chapter 12, there's a passage uh, that tells us kind of what, uh, what it is that comes from this spring of living water that wells up in us. It says, with joy, this is Isaiah 12, 3 through 6, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted, sing praises to the Lord for he has done gloriously. Let this be known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Notice all the things that, that, that those verses tell us are responses to this feeling that we have, this assurance that we have. We're going to give thanks. We're going to sing praise. We're going to make known all the great things that He has done in our life. We're going to shout and we're going to sing for joy. We're going to continue to call upon His name. All of these things are part of that response to this living water. And so this Samaritan woman receives this gift of living water. Now notice, I'm going to skip over a few verses here because we're going to come back to them. Well, excuse me, not we're going to skip over. I'm going to skip a little bit later. But it says, The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. And then we're going to skip down here to the, to the verse 25. It says, the woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. She receives the gift of this living water because she encounters Jesus in this brief conversation, this brief moment spent with him. She receives this living water. The second thing that we see that she receives is a new way of worship. Now, in the Old Testament, uh, the Jews worshipped and the Samaritans worshipped in uh, a number of different kind of ritualistic ways. Sacrifices, uh, different uh, processes and ways to do uh, and express their worship to God. The Holy Spirit uh, was present but it was not indwelling in those people. The Holy Spirit would come and he would uh, involve himself in their lives in various ways and, and help them through this and, and uh, give them power to, uh, to prophesy or to do other things. But now in the New Testament, his believers are going to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so this new way of worship is going to put away some of that ritualistic and um, formulaic kind of, kind of worship. And Jesus says here, it's going to be a worship that is of spirit and truth. Let's look back 
into verse 20. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. In the place where they were, they were very close to Mount Gerizim, and here we're talking about these two temples, these two places to worship. And Jesus says, you know, there's going to come a time when neither place is going to be the significance in terms of worship. Whether we're talking about Mount Gerizim or we're talking about Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. So there's two things, two aspects to this kind of new worship that is coming. That not only is this woman at the well going to receive, but all that are a part of the new covenant. The first that we're going to talk about is truth. Now, that's the second one that's listed there, but we're going to talk about it first. Worship in spirit and in truth. Psalm chapter 119 verse 160 says, The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. The sum of your word. We go all the way back to the very beginning of the book of Genesis, all the way to the end of the book of Revelation, and the sum of all of that together is truth. And our worship must be based on that particular truth. In John chapter 17, verse 17, Jesus asked God, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And so, when we, again, when we look into the scriptures, understanding that our worship is founded upon the word of God. And so we worship then in the truth of whatever the, the word is teaching us. What does the word reveal to us? Well, reveals to us uh, the truth of who God is. All the way through the scriptures, we learn all the attributes of God. And our worship then recognizes and appreciates those characteristics and qualities of God. And in this passage, Jesus says, God is spirit. One of those things that, that we recognize and understand in terms of our worship. Not only the truth of who he is, but the truth of who we are. Now this woman, in this conversation with Jesus, has had a lot of things about herself revealed. Now she knows about her life, and we know about our lives, and we know, you know, who we are. But I think God has a way of revealing to us things that we don't even really know about ourselves. That the truth of the Scripture reveals to us who we really are. And our worship has to be based on that as well. It also reveals to us the truth of what God does. Again, from the book of Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation, we see the plan of God at work. We know what God is trying to accomplish here. In this passage, it talks about that he is seeking out true worshipers. That's another way of describing the gospel, I think. He wants all men to come to a saving knowledge of of himself, of Christ, and become 
these true worshipers. And the word also reveals the truth of what's going on in our world. They talk about this conflict here between the Jews and the Samaritans. And the, the scriptures can teach us, help us to understand what is going on in the world. And we can worship then in the light of God's sovereignty, of God's wisdom, and knowing that God is in control. And Jesus speaks to that even in this passage when he's talking about the conflict between the Jews and the Samaritans and that there is no longer going to be that in in place. In John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Our worship needs to be based in that truth. But also, it says we are to worship in spirit. In Ezekiel chapter 36, it says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. Ezekiel is prophesying about the new covenant, prophesying about the kingdom of God. He says, I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The difference between worship in the Old Testament and worship in the New Testament is that it is spirit-filled. True worship is internal, not external. Sometimes we get caught up in the externals. We come to church, come to worship, and, you know, we we get caught up in uh, how the building looks. Um, We get caught up in uh, the the, the sound of the music. You know, some of us get hung up on whether it's too loud or too soft or what kind it is. We get caught up sometimes in uh, other people around us. You know, oh, Joe and Susie aren't here today. Their pews are, their seats are empty. Or, um, you know, looking at somebody over there and I wonder what they're doing on their phone. You know, are they using a Bible app or are they shopping on Amazon? What are they doing over there? And we can, you know, we can kind of get caught up in those external things about worship. Get distracted at times. The bells and the whistles associated with it. But we need to remember that the, the external expression of worship is a result of what's on the inside, of the internal. Isaiah 66, verse 2. I want you to notice how each of these verses here connects both spirit and, and truth. It says, but this is the one to whom I will look. God is talking about who he is going to look to in terms of worship. He says, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Acts 4, verse 31 And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. And then notice these two verses here, one in Ephesians and one in Colossians, who we might think, or or, of each of these verses we might think, you know, they're opposites of one another. But when we combine them together, we get this understanding of worshiping in spirit and truth. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. 
the spirit side of, of worship. But then in Colossians 3, verse 16, it says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Those things, those two verses are not contrary to one another. They are complementary to one another. To worship in spirit and to worship in truth. To combine those two things. We worship with our heart and our head. We worship not only Our worship is not only based on true doctrine, but also on that due emotion. The feelings that we are due, the worship that we are due, our Father. So this woman at the well has received this living water. She has also then been, uh, it's been revealed to her that a new kind of worship was coming and that she was going to be able to receive and be a part of. And the third thing then is found uh, in the, the next verses here. Starting in verse 27. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town And said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. John does an amazing job here of kind of painting this picture and giving us a sense of of the sequence of events that's going on here. The disciples come back. They've got food for for Christ and they're wanting him to eat something because he's obviously hungry. At that time, she, she's had this conversation with Jesus. He's revealed these amazing things to her. She recognizes him and has and, and uh, been told that he is the Messiah, the one that she is looking for. And so she takes off. She goes back to the village, goes back to the town. She begins to tell everybody, you know, what's going on. And I'm not sure what she said to them, but it's amazing that the whole village turns out. She goes and talks to them. I don't know if she gathered them all together or if she went to a couple, three of them and then they brought some other people. And, but it doesn't, take, it doesn't take very long for this to happen. And it says the, the town, and made, you know, they all came out and went to see Jesus. Then it goes back to uh, his disciples. It says, meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say four months more and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Now for years I always thought, you know, Jesus is using that as a great metaphor. You know, he's looking out, maybe, there, maybe there's a field next to the, to the well there, maybe that's uh, um, starting, to, st- starting to come up, you know, there's some uh, plants there or whatever, and look, you know, it's time to harvest, but I don't think that's what's happening at all. What he, what he says to his disciples is, get your heads up and look. Look at these people all coming out from this village, this town. This is the harvest. You need to be ready to reap this harvest. 
Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. The third thing that she receives, you have the living water, she receives this new kind of worship and now she gets to play a role in the harvest. She gets to play a part in this. There are three people here, are three roles that are being played. The first one, Jesus' role. In this case, he is sowing seed in the heart of this one woman. He has taught her, again, some things that are very difficult for her to understand, but he has sowed the seed. And his seed is very profound and prophetic. He is able to tell her things about her that nobody else would know. The second role here is played by this woman. Her role is to sow seed in the hearts of the villagers, all of these people. Notice the contrast between her seed and Jesus' seed. Jesus is very profound. His teaching is very deep. He teaches through prophecy. But the woman's seed is very simple. It's very personal in the form of a testimony. He told me all that I ever did. Two people sowing the seed. And then the third role here is the disciples' role. He tells them to look at the crowd of people coming out from this village. Look at all those that you're about to reap for the kingdom. There are the sowers and there are the reapers. And I think we need to understand that you know, each one of us is not one or the other. It depends on what circumstances and situations that we are in life, whether we are a sower, maybe we have an opportunity to be the first person or, or another person to sow the seed of the knowledge of Jesus Christ in a person's heart. Maybe it's piggybacking on a lot of what other people have managed to, to teach and to show them. Or we may be in a position where others have sowed the seed, this person has come to us now, and it's an opportunity for us to reap the harvest. It doesn't really matter. Both should rejoice in that role. The role of the sower, the role of the reaper. It goes back to the beginning of this chapter. You remember where at the very beginning there was this conflict here between John's disciples and Jesus' disciples. And Jesus is saying here at this point, it doesn't matter. Jesus avoided baptizing people because he didn't want that to be an important issue that both the sower and the reaper should, should rejoice. And this woman, from the very moment in which she meets Jesus, gets a chance to play, and play a role in that harvest from the very beginning. She didn't know anything. She knew that Jesus knew her, knew her better than she knew herself. He could tell her everything that she had ever done. And he must be the Messiah. And that was the extent of her knowledge. And yet she was a 
a part of that process. Three things that she receives, this living water, this new worship, and a role in the ministry and the, uh, the plan of God. Three aspects of grace that each one of us has received as well. Each of us has the opportunity to partake of that soul-quenching living water. Each one of us has been called upon to worship in this new way with the Spirit and truth. And each of us then has a role to play in the plan of God. Remember that uh, opening statement that Jesus said to the woman, if you knew the gift of God. And I think as we, as we close, a question that we need to ask ourselves, is it, is it possible that we really don't know the gift of God? That we really don't know all the things that this eternal life has to offer us? I think sometimes we, we think we do. We think we know the extent of you know, the eternal life that God has, has granted us. But I think when we really, um, when we really understand what this eternal life is, then we understand that there's more to it than even I can know. The more that I know about the gift of God, the more I know about this living water, the more that I'm inspired and and, uh, compelled to ask for it, to continue to receive it. And what is revealed to us is oftentimes something new, something surprising, and we are amazed at the depth of His kindness and His love and His grace when we begin to consider and to think about it. This morning, um, we always offer an opportunity for uh, those to, to come and to make a decision for Christ. And I'm going to have a word of prayer, and then I'm going to ask Ray if he will come and uh, offer our invitation this morning. And uh, my hope and prayer is that this uh, living water will quench the thirst that your soul has. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so very thankful for uh, the the story that we've read here in in John chapter 4. We just thank you for the wonderful things that we receive because of your grace. Thank you for the example of this uh, Samaritan woman that we can learn from. And we just pray that you would... um, Help us to always be searching and seeking to drink that living water. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.